listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates sarah's away today but if you're not she'll be back we are going to dig into the scriptures we're searching the scriptures today in just a moment in the may issue of the lutheran witness thanks to concordia university wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu live uncommon joining me today the reverend roy askins managing editor of the lutheran witness it is time to search the scriptures so we're going to Dig into page 28 in the May issue of Search of the Lutheran Witness. Yes. Pastor Askins, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back, Andy. The mystery of Christ in this May issue is what yeah. we're taking a look at. So it looks like we're in Ephesians, continuing our study of Ephesians. That's correct. And uh, so here we have, it actually would be helpful here to give a little bit of a summary of kind of where we've come from and sure. where we're at here in Ephesians. Uh, we started, you know, chapter one, you have these two opening prayers where St. Paul sets the outline, as it were. You know, you look in the Lutheran Study Bible, you have an outline of the of the book of the Bible you're about to study there and the explanation. Well, Paul does this very well in these first two opening prayers that he has in chapter one. In chapter two, we move into justification by grace through faith. So he's setting up the context for what's going to become kind of the key insight in this letter, and that is uh, the mystery of Christ, that Jews and Gentiles now together are joined together and both justified by grace through faith, and that this brings together uh, the Jew and the Gentile into an essential unity in Jesus Christ. So that's kind of where we're at uh, here. This is now, I've given a little bit away, but this is kind of the, the, the climax of his argument here and the key point he's trying to bring out for the Ephesians to note. And after this, we'll move in chapter 4 into the consequences or the, the, the results of this unity. What does this mean that they are now united together? What does this new life look like? So that's kind of where we are, middle of the, the book of, of the epistle to the Ephesians and kind of the high point of Paul's argument. All right. Are we ready to dig into question one? Let's do it. Read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. What does for this reason refer? Uh, to what does for this reason refer? Also read Acts 21, verses 27 to 30. What circumstances led to St. Paul's imprisonment? All right. 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, a couple of times in this letter, Paul is going to refer to his status as a prisoner. But here he's directly tying... His status as a prisoner, using the phrase, for this reason, he's directly tying his status as a prisoner to the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, if we go back and look at last month's study, or la- yeah, last month's study, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, he's talking about how the Gentiles and the Greeks have now, have now been, I'm sorry, the Jews and the Gentiles have now been brought together in Christ Jesus, that they are brought together by the blood of Christ, that the Gentiles who were once aliens are now uh, members of this body of Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed, so forth and so on. The hostility has been killed, literally, and so it is this proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles that is the reason for Paul's imprisonment. And what does he mean by this? Well, the broader context here we get in Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 30. 
and it tells the story, uh, the kind of the background of how Paul got to be imprisoned. And here's the here's the passage. When seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that is Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the prop people and the law and this place. Nothing like exaggeration, right? The people everywhere, right? Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, that's important, note that, Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Okay, so here Paul has been accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple and uh, where Gentiles were not allowed to be. And therefore, uh, it was, you know, once again, the, this consequence of him being with this Ephesian, proclaiming the gospel to these Ephesians, and therefore the, the Jews being angry about this and this proclamation to the Ephesians that ultimately led to his, his imprisonment. Question two? I think we can do that. All right. Read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. What is the stewardship of God's grace that was given to St. Paul, and how was the mystery revealed to St. Paul? See Acts chapter 9. Okay, so the stewardship of God's grace. Let's read the passage real quick. So, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as as I have written briefly. Okay, so in other words, he's now, you know, writing to the Ephesians and saying, assuming you've heard of this, this message, I've actually told you about this, how this revelation was made known to me. And he, in fact, wrote about it briefly. So, so he's, he's talking about things that they have already known. So what is this stewardship of God's grace? Well, the stewardship of God's grace uh, has two reference here that we need to consider. First is God's grace in redeeming Paul, regardless, despite his persecution of the church. And this is going to come forward again later as he talks about in verse 8, the very least of all the saints, right? Or in 1 Corinthians, he'll talk about the least of the apostles, right? Why? Because he persecuted the church. So on the, on the one hand, God's grace is given to him that he this might not be counted against him eternally, right? God chose him to be not only one who has faith in Jesus Christ, but also the one who then would proclaim this this uh, message of God's grace to the Gentiles. So, so that's the one reference. But then also, Paul's own ministry is often referred to as stewardship. Uh, a steward is one who holds the authority of his master, the authority of the master of the house, and he has, as with that authority, he has the authority to open and close the house, as it were, to distribute the gifts, to use his master's account as the master has called him to do so. Now, what's fascinating about this, as a steward, Paul is the steward of these these mysteries, as he says also in First Corinthians chapter four. But the steward, while he can use the master's goods, the master is still responsible for what the steward does, right? So St. Paul distributes these gifts as he's given to do, but it is still our Lord's responsibility that these things are being done, right? That's how, that's how this works. It's, it's, it's a beautiful passage about how uh, pastors are to serve under the leadership and under uh, the guidance and direction of our Lord and Savior. So that's kind of the idea here, the stewardship of God's grace given to Paul, both in being brought to faith, but then also the one who then shares this, I should say, shares the, the grace of God. In this stewardship, his ministry of stewardship here. Okay, so how was this mystery then revealed to St. Paul? Well, for that, we go to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And we don't need to actually read all of this. Uh, Most of you are probably familiar with this. It's the story of St. Paul's conversion. 
and and he, you know, as you know, he was going to Damascus to uh, persecute the Christians there. And then there's a bright light, and he falls off his horse. And then uh, Jesus speaks to him, you know, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he spends three days in Damascus, and then blanking Ananias comes and speaks to him, I believe. Yes, and. Um, and uh, you know, put, lays hands on him, and you know, as he recovers his sight, he baptizes, become a Christian, becomes a Christian. But what's interesting here, and what's important, is after this proc- after this happens, he doesn't actually go immediately into catechesis with the apostles, as it were. Right? He receives this teaching directly from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he talks about this in Galatians chapter one, where he receives this teaching from Christ. And it's not until after fourteen years that he goes and presents his case before those who seem to be pillars in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that, that is the apostles, and they agree that his preaching is in fact the gospel. So his point here is this mystery is made known, to, made known to him by revelation. It was not based on somebody else's teaching. It was not based on him sitting at somebody else's feet, but the Lord himself directly revealed this to St. Paul. Question three. Yeah. Read Ephesians chapter three, verses four through five. To whom is St. Paul referring when he says, sons of men in other generations? To whom has the mystery been revealed? All right. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the, made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here he's, refer, he's talking about, once again, this, this, whatever this text is that they have, that they hear about his, his coming to faith. And he says, when you receive this, you'll perceive my, my mystery it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So here we have, of course, course, the Jews, the Hebrew people, descendants of Abraham who clung to this promise, they did not fully understand the mystery. So it's important to realize here that this is not as though they had no understanding of this whatsoever, that the Jews, the Gentiles, as we're going to discover here in a little bit uh, when he defines the mystery, it's not as though the Hebrew people had no understanding that the Gentiles would be incorporated. Because if you look at the Old Testament passages of God's promise, particularly, you know, to Abraham, for example, God says, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There's some understanding that this this promise that God has for the world that will be delivered through the, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, will be for all the world. So there is some understanding of that. But it's not fully revealed until we get the mystery revealed in Christ Jesus. And that's going to be the key, right? So the sons of men and other generations refers to Abraham and his descendants and their partial understanding of what this is. But this full revelation waits for for Jesus Christ. It waits for the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that is to the one to whom this mystery has been revealed. The apostles and prophets uh, by the Spirit has revealed that Jesus Christ is himself now the fulfillment of this promise and the one through whom uh, all the nations of the earth, Gentiles and Jews alike, will be blessed. So that's what the, the second one, apostles and prophets, then in our second question, apostles and prophets refers to, you know, of course, obviously the 12 apostles and then even Paul himself as he considers himself an apostle. Once again, as one untimely born, he says in, in 1 Corinthians, because he realizes his own failures in persecuting the church, but he still considers himself to be one of these apostles to whom this mystery has been revealed. We are searching the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 3, The Mystery of Christ, in the May issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. Sarah's away today. We are searching the scriptures in the May issue of The Lutheran Witness, taking a look at Ephesians chapter 3, The Mystery of Christ, with the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. Right, we are going on to question 4 now on page 28 in the May issue. Question 4, read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. What is the mystery of Christ? Verse 4. Verse, uh, yeah, verse four. So this is, well, let's read the passage, uh, Ephesians 3, verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this is, once again, kind of the key passage that St. Paul has been building up to in the book of Ephesians in this first section here, and it is the, the one of the key reasons he has for writing this to the Ephesians, that now the Jews and the Gentiles are are partakers together of this promise, that are they are fully members of the body of Christ. And he does this in this verse right here, using three wonderful little Greek words that's hard for us to understand exactly how he's doing this because we have it in English. But there's this, this Greek prefix on a word that is S-U-N or S-U-M. It means with. So soon or sum, it means with. And he has three words here that use this uh, this prefix. They, they can do this in Greek. It's kind of fun where they add this soon prefix to other to other words and it means with. It kind of mm-hmm. like a German, you know, mashing words together to get what you want. And so they're doing that's just what St. Paul is doing here in this passage. All right, so the, the Gentiles are uh, fellow heirs. That is, it actually literally means heirs with. They're like with heirs, so that they are heirs together with one another. They are members of the same body. This is literally bodied with, right? In other words, they have a body with. It's actually, a, it only occurs here in the New Testament in this passage right here. It's a unique word and almost like uh, St. Paul kind of made it up. Uh, and it has the sense of multiple members of one body, right? It doesn't make any logically, right? But this is what he means. We are members with one another of one body. And then finally, he says partakers of the promise. This is this is also using this with word, with partakers of this promise. In other words, with together, Jews and Gentile like, once again, the kind of the key climax here. And so this is the mystery um, that he has been building up to, that Gentiles are fellow heirs. So what does this mean then that this takes place for the Gentiles? Well, it, it's a reversal um, of their previous status. As we discussed last month, once again, uh, he talks about the Gentiles as aliens and strangers, those who did not belong to the promise. Now they are no longer that. The, their status completely reversed. They are now fellow heirs with the Jews of these promises in Christ Jesus. So it's a reversal of that status. 
and a fulfillment once again, as we were talking a little bit earlier, of these promises that God would, that uh, God would bless all nations of the earth through the Jewish people. And what this is once again why we get to this point that the mystery is not simply that Jews and Gentiles are now partakers together of the same promise, but they are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the key. He's the key figure here that brings everything together. The promise God made to Abraham. And the promise he made throughout the Old Testament to the Jewish people, to the Hebrew people, is that they were a people set apart for the purpose of bringing forth the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. And that now, this had been partially understood during that time, it is now fully revealed in Christ Jesus, this mystery fully known that in Christ Jesus, Jews and Gentiles now share together this this mystery, share together in the riches, as he talks about time and time again, the unsearchable riches of Christ. They do this together. Question five. Let's do it. Read Ephesians chapter three, verse seven. Discuss the meanings of the word minister. How do they apply to St. Paul in this circumstance? So Ephesians 3, verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now, this word minister has a couple of different meanings. Andy, what are the different meanings that you're at least familiar with of this word minister? I mean, we use it in so many different ways. Culturally, the the word minister is used in many different ways, or it could take on different meanings depending Mm -hmm. on the context. The one who serves... When we're talking about the gospel, one who serves with the gospel or serves the gospel. Exactly. And I think that, so that's the the idea I really wanted to get there was this idea of service. We were talking a little bit earlier at the beginning of the show that in England, they call their their public officers or public uh, servants Mm -hmm. ministers. You might be the minister, you might be the, the minister in the ministry of... I don't know, whatever, foreign affairs or whatever. And this minister is one who serves the public good uh, in the office in which uh, he's been placed. And so once again here, this idea of service kind of informs this whole concept of of minister here and St. Paul's understanding of this word minister. I want to draw out a couple of things that make this clear. First, he says, I was made a minister. This is, let's put on our geeky grammar hats here. This is a passive tense. In other words, this is not something he he did, right? He was just riding a donkey on the way. I'm assuming it's a donkey. Maybe it wasn't a donkey. Maybe it was something <laughs> else. Uh, on the way to Damascus, and our Lord appeared to him and and brought him to faith in Jesus Christ and then sent him on this mission. So it wasn't his choice. And I think this is something we need to continue to hold in front of ourselves as we think about, especially here with the recent calling and and uh, sending out of all of these young men from the, the theology of the call. Pastors are not those who put themselves into the call, but they are put by Christ or by God through the church, through the Holy Spirit, into these offices. And so this is where I think we need to work on on the way we talk about this call. Uh, sometimes you'll hear uh, there's a kind of a confusing way people talk about, well, I felt called to go into ministry, and that's a personal feeling, a personal inclination that does not constitute a divine call into this office. A man is not called into the office until the Holy Spirit actually calls him through a congregation to be a pastor in that place. And I think that's very important for us to hold in mind here 
here, even St. Paul understands his call this way, that it is passive. It was done to him to be this minister. And what is it then that he does as this minister? How do these terms apply? How does this term minister apply to St. Paul? Well, once again, the key is, as Andy said, service, but uh, kind of in, in two ways. As a pastor, who one who has authority in the church, he serves in the church to minister, administer the, the means of grace, a proclamation of the word and the sacraments, but then also as one who just lives in service to Christ's people. So obviously he's not a political leader here, but he lives in service to uh, God's people as a minister here. Once again, all given by the working of God's power, all given by entirely and completely God's grace. Question six. Yeah, let's do it. Ephesians chapter three. Read Ephesians chapter three, verses eight through ten. Why is Saint Paul the least of all the saints? See also First Corinthians fifteen, verses eight to ten. What task did Saint Paul receive when the mystery was revealed to him? Uh, Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, we've, we've talked about this first question, why is St. Paul called the least of all the saints? We've talked about this a couple of times. This was a consequence of his persecution of the church. He's kind of the 13th apostle, and he considers himself, the, the actual word here is to one untimely born or to almost like a, a miscarriaged uh, apostle. So there's obviously something wrong here with his coming in as a consequence, becoming an apostle as a consequence of his persecution of the church. But the task given to him is to proclaim this gospel. And this is the task given given, as we see here in verse 10, to the entire church. Uh, it's really interesting here, so that through the church, the manful wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this phrase, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, refers to, actually, and elsewhere in... in um, in this epistle, to the angels and also the demons, the powers of, of wickedness and evil. So what's fascinating here to think about is, as we gather as the church, as we gather to hear the proclamation of God's word, as we receive baptism and the Lord's Supper, what is being proclaimed enters, of course, into our ears, and it is uh, strengthening our faith and builds us up, but it is also a proclamation into the spiritual realms, into the heavenly places, so that once again, every time we gather to hear the proclamation of God's word and receive his gifts, we are telling the devil and all his wicked hordes, the, our, our sinful flesh, the world, all those things that war against Christ and his redeeming work, we are telling them, proclaiming to them the victory of Christ Jesus, and they are they are hearing again how he has conquered them and, and defeated them. And this is the work that St. Paul was given, particularly to proclaim among the Gentiles and in the Gentile, among the Gentile peoples. Uh, And then, of course, here, the key big in this passage that these Gentiles now proclaim to both Jew and Gentile are fellow heirs with Christ Jesus of this promise. Do we want to look at 1 Corinthians? Oh, did I not? Did I miss First Corinthians? We we should. That's actually a all good right. passage. So once again, this is where he's talking about uh, his own role as as the least of all the saints. First Corinthians fifteen eight through ten, he says uh, he writes. Last of all, as to one untimely born. Once again, that's the word he uses for for a miscarried child. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
So once again, giving, you know, amazing how he, he just continues to give all glory to God for God's work. Question seven. Let's do it. Read Ephesians chapter three, verse 13. Why does St. Paul ask the Ephesians not to lose heart? How is St. Paul suffering for their glory? So I ask you not to lose heart, he writes in verse 13, over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So this takes us actually all the way back up to the beginning of our study, where Paul talks about being a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles and and talks about, uh, once again, a number of times in this letter, being a prisoner. And he's writing this to them, I think, because he doesn't want them to feel as though they have, in some sense, been responsible for his suffering as a slave. Remember, again, he was uh, imprisoned as a consequence of his supposedly being in the temple with Trophimus the Ephesian, right? And so th- there's there are some scholars who think that, that perhaps the Ephesians were feeling guilty over this association between St. Paul and, uh, and Trophimus. And St. Paul is pointing out to them that, once again, all of this is in God's hands. He's saying, I'm merely a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm simply proclaiming what he has given me to preach and proclaim. Therefore, if I suffer, it's because God has ordained me to suffer. All of this continues in his hands. It is all his service. And he says that, once again, this suffering, his suffering, is indeed actually for their glory. Now, this actually kind of turns everything up on upside down on its head. Nobody thinks, as suffer, in, uh, thinks of suffering as glory, right? But what's one of the amazing things about the gospel to John is whenever Jesus talks about his glorification in the Gospel of John, he's almost always talking about his crucifixion and death. When he talks about glorify me, he calls on the Father to glorify him, he's talking about the glory that comes as he suffers and dies, right? So the glory of Jesus occurs as his hands are spread on the cross, the thorns are on his head, he's covered in blood, he's dying. This is the glory of God. Why? Because it's when God is acting for the world to redeem the world. It is the glory of his name. What is his name? The Lord saves. And this is precisely what he's doing in the death of Jesus Christ. And though to our eyes, it looks like shame, shameful weakness and death, and it's nothing we would want to have, our, our sinful flesh would want to have anything to do with, this is in fact the glory of God. And so when St. Paul is writing here that he is also suffering, he is suffering in, uh, we could say, a derivative fashion for the proclamation of the gospel. He is suffering with Jesus Christ. And so also this this is also the case for us. We are connected to Christ's suffering and death by virtue of our baptism. We do not suffer in the way he did, of course. We're not suffering for our own sins, but we are connected to his suffering. And the suffering that he bore is now also our suffering because we are united to him and we become uh, God's children in that way. So this is uh, this is what he's saying here. This is his suffering is for their glory because in this, this suffering, he's able to also continue to proclaim the gospel to them and to the world. The Mystery of Christ, Ephesians chapter 3, in the May issue of The Lutheran Witness. How can we find The Lutheran Witness? You can find it in a couple of ways. If you don't have a subscription, you subscribe at cph.org witness. That's cph.org witness. Or you can visit our website to preview some of this material, preview some of the magazine, and that's witness.lcms.org, witness.lcms.org. Thanks for helping us study and search the scriptures this month. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.